welcome back to church for another week. Um, I don't know why I said that. You've been welcomed already. Um, Riley is away this week, and so he has uh, asked me to come up and preach again. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm just being self-deprecating, don't worry. Um, yeah, we're going to spend some time now looking at another psalm, and just before we do, let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is your gift to us to know you, to understand you, to love you, and to be in a relationship with you. I pray now as I unpack this Psalm 1 for us, that you will help all of us, especially me, to understand it by your spirit. I pray that your truth will shine out clearly, and that our hearts will come away changed. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we, we've been looking at the book of Psalms over the last few weeks, uh, over the summer, and Psalms is a fantastic book because it is, it's the Hebrew songbook for reflecting on life itself, reflecting on what life's all about, reflecting on all the different aspects of life. But Psalm 1 serves a special function in the book of Psalms because it is the introduction to the book of Psalms. It's the one that kind of teaches you the lens through which every other Psalm should be read. Uh, and so it's a really helpful thing for us to understand uh, as Christians. And it's a very famous psalm for that reason as well. Most people who have read the book of Psalms, you know, it would make sense to start at the beginning and to have a crack at Psalm 1. Uh, and it, it lays out a bit of a roadmap for you as to how to think about what the book of Psalms is and what the, what the life of the faithful person is all about. And so I'm going to read it for us now, and then we'll start to uh, delve into the different components of it. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does... He prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I want to start off by just drawing our attention to that very first word in this psalm, blessed. Uh, that word in Hebrew is asher, and it's uh, a word that doesn't have just one meaning. Uh, it can mean things like happy or in a blessed state, and so our Bibles translate them that way, and that is a good translation. Um, but the thing about the Hebrew language is the Hebrew language has about 8,000 to 14,000 words, depending on how you count them and depending on whether you include things like names of places in that list of words. So Hebrew, it, it sounds like a lot, but just to give you a bit of a comparison, English has over 170,000 words. And if you include words that we don't really use anymore, that number goes up more to like 240,000. So English is an incredibly precise language. We have lots of options when we want to think about how we explain ourselves. And for that reason, words can, they don't always, they can have a very narrow semantic range, we would say, like the, the different things those words could mean. In Hebrew, just by sheer necessity, uh, the words tend to have more than one meaning. They tend to have multiple meanings, and those meanings, depending on context, uh, determine what's being said in that given moment. But in poetry, you get to play with that. And the book of Psalms is a poetic book. 
So when words have elasticity to them, you can actually take that elasticity and muck around with it. Uh, there was an example of it in English that I came across in preparing for this week where uh, the, it's a lyric to a song, actually, and I've forgotten the song name, but it says, uh, the man rushed to put out the cat, the cigar, and the wine. And on first glance, that doesn't make a ton of sense, but then you think about put out, it can mean you put out the cat, as in you put it outside, put out the wine, as in place it on the table, or put out your cigar, as in extinguish it. So it just plays with that idea that just that one word or that one idea can actually have several different meanings. Now, the word asher in Hebrew, that word blessed, has that idea as well. It doesn't just mean happy or blessed. It also can mean to walk on or to walk straight. So the idea of being blessed, it's not just being happy or being in a good state, being in a positive emotional state or being in a good life circumstance. It actually has this sense of a journey built into it as well. And you can see in the next couple of verses that that, uh, that play on words is definitely sitting there as you read the next little bit. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So the, the blessed person is a person who is living a particular way. Their journey of life has particular features. And the psalmist immediately goes on to define what that journey does not look like. It doesn't look like receiving the counsel of the wicked or standing in the way of sinners and or sitting in the seat of scoffers. Uh, instantly, Psalm 1 jumps right into the idea that we live in a universe, in a reality, in an existence that has a moral dimension to it. Uh, there is such a thing as good and evil. We don't live in an amoral universe. We live in a universe where there is such a thing as right and wrong. And the good life is the life in which you don't live in an evil way. And uh, he describes what that is. Don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Uh, there's an idea in there that we are suggestible people. Uh, we are prone to being influenced. We have the ability to follow an influence in one direction or in another. And the counsel of the wicked is the way that we shouldn't follow. Uh, but notice that it doesn't stop there. It doesn't say, walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but then it, it uh, progresses. First you walk, then you stand, and then you sit. Uh, a lot of us, um, when we think about our own lives, especially when we think about our day-to-day -day lives, we fool ourselves into thinking that the decisions we make and the things that we do don't matter. Uh, that I'm me, I'm me today, I'll be me tomorrow, I'll be me 10 years from now. I'm, you know, I'm Scott Lucas, your, your name, I'm not gonna say everyone's name, it'll take too long and I don't know everyone's name. Um, but you get the idea, you're, you're you and you will continue to be you. But that's not actually how our lives work. Our lives are not static, they are directional. You are, you are moving a way in terms of your life trajectory, in terms of your moral decisions. Um, I can't remember the exact quote, but it's kind of like sow an action and reap a habit, sow a habit, reap a character, and sow a character and reap a destiny. And that idea is very clear here in Psalm chapter one, verse one. Uh, the wicked walk 
in a particular way. And the blessed person is the one who realizes that there is a call on your life from wickedness uh, to take you along that journey with them, to, to join them on that road, to walk that way. Uh, and that counsel, um, those influences are calling you in that direction. And the blessed person is someone who recognizes that that is not the way to live. Uh, and so that's one thing just to think about in our, in our lives. Psalm 1 is what we call a wisdom psalm, uh, which means it is framing wisdom for how to live life. And instantly, the second we get into this psalm, we realize that there is uh, a, a takeaway point from that. Influence. You are prone to being influenced. You are prone to being influenced by other people. You are prone to being influenced by the media you consume. And not only that, um, the influences of your life have themselves a moral component to them. They're, they're coming from somewhere. The newspaper articles you read were written by a person. They were written by a person with a particular point of view, with a particular agenda. The songs you listen to were written by a particular point of view or a particular person. And as our culture moves further and, way, uh, further, and further away from God, we, it's easier and easier to spot just how true that is. Uh, does anyone remember, um, I think it was either the last year or the year before, Sam Smith uh, got up at, I think it was the Grammys, or the, I think it was the Grammys, and he, he was dressed up in like a Satan costume and dancing around in ridiculous, like, it was just, it was the most transparently like evil thing, and they're not even trying to hide it anymore. Um, it's just out in the open um, that we live in a world that is hostile to God. And whether overt or covert, there are influences that are trying to grab hold of you and pull you down that road away from God. Uh, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, uh, but joining in in the direction of life that the wicked take. Uh, and then it moves on, the, the metaphor kind of expands. In Hebrew poetry, there's a thing called parallelism, which is where one line um, says one thing, and then very often the next line will do something that relates to the line that just came before it. Um, normally these things happen in pairs, but in this case there's actually a triplet here. Um, there's three ideas that all join that one chunk. Um, and we call this type of parallelism here synthetic parallelism because one idea expands on the next and then expands on the next and all three of them together make a whole. So you walk not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, so you've started heading in direction, and then this idea of standing, it implies this idea of being comfortable. Um, the, the motion is starting to slow down, and you're becoming more and more entrenched in a particular way. Uh, but there's also a double meaning here, because in Hebrew, to stand in someone's way, it means the exact opposite of what you would think it means in English. Like in English, if you stand in someone's way, you are blocking them. You are making it impossible for them to get past you. Uh, but in Hebrew, it means... You're walking in their shoes. You're going with them. You're actually heading in that same direction. Uh, so there's tons of different meanings all bouncing around in each other in this chunk of verses. Walk not in the counsel of the wicked. Stand in the way. Again, moving with them, but walk, stand, sit. There's, you're getting more and more stationary, more and more comfortable, more and more entrenched. Stands in the way of sinners, and then finally sits in the seat of scoffers. Um, you were walking with them, you're getting comfortable with them, and then you plant yourself in that life. Again, sow an action, reap a habit, sow a habit, reap a character, sow a character, reap a destiny. There's that flow idea here. Sit in the seat of scoffers. And the word sit in Hebrew, it doesn't just mean to plant yourself down in a chair. It can also mean to dwell or to make your home. 
So to sit, it's not just you're in, you know, you're in someone's chair. It means you're actually making your home with these people. You are becoming one of them. And notice also there's an escalation, not just in the direction of the person. They walk, they stand, they sit. Um, their counsel leads them to the way which leads them to sit or make a home. But also the, uh, the people that you're kind of joining the company of, there's an escalating sense there. Wicked is someone who has an evil orientation. Sinner is someone who does evil. And then scoffer is someone who actually makes fun of or shouts down the good. So there's, an, there's a sense of escalation there. But all of those things together uh, point out a state of life. Uh, you are blessed if you are not oriented away from God. That's ultimately what verse 1 means. The good life is the life of not being oriented towards sin, heading on that direction and yet paradoxically also entrenched in that way of life. It means both things at once. When you choose the life of sin, you are moving away from God and you are planting yourself there. Both things are true at the same time. And then verse 2, uh, the, the way it's written in Hebrew, there's a very clear like, but, you know, disjunctive, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Now, the word law in Hebrew, it's referring primarily to the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. But the book of Psalms is actually written in five books as well. So Psalms, it doesn't really come across unless you actually read the headings, but Psalms 1 to 40, a book one, and I can't remember the rest of the bookmarks, but um, Psalms is actually a five-volume book as well. And it's done that deliberately to mirror the first five books of the Old Testament. And as Christians, we know that God's Word is not just the Old Testament, it's not just the book of Psalms, it is everything that God has revealed to us through the apostles and the prophets and uh, through the, well, I guess it's those two really, and Jesus, we'll come back to that. Um, so the, the law of the Lord, it doesn't refer specifically just to five books of the Old Testament, it's talking to the entire revelation of God, including the book of Psalms. Um, Psalm 1 is written as an introduction to the book of Psalms and it's it's inviting you in to uh, delight in the Word of God found in the Psalms as well as the Old Testament. And for us Christians, we know that that expands to the New Testament as well. So the, the life of the wicked follows the counsel of the wicked, plants itself there. The life that is blessed follows the law of God and delights in the law of God. And the word delight there in Hebrew, it doesn't Sorry, in English, it doesn't quite capture the full extent of what it means in Hebrew. Uh, it can mean delight, and it does, but it, it's deeper than that. It also means desire and purpose and pleasure. So again, it's like an orientation of your whole self is in the direction of this thing. So there's two different directions of life you can go. There's the direction of the evil, um, the person who has turned themselves away from God and chosen the life of sin, and there is the person whose orientation is towards the law or the word of God. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Uh, that word meditates in Hebrew, uh, sorry, I'm going to do this a lot, I apologize. Um, this word meditates in Hebrew, it's the word hagar, and it's, it's almost like an onomatopoeic word. Who's done your seven English? Kaylee, have you done onomatopoeia yet? No, you only just started, that's too early, too early, sorry. Um, 
onomatopoeia is a word that sounds like what it is. So, haga, 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 haga. Like, it actually, that's kind of what it means in Hebrew. It, uh, to meditate in Hebrew doesn't mean to stick both legs behind your head and pinch your fingers and sit under a tree and, and you know, make a, a noise. It actually means to repeat it to yourself. Um, and in Hebrew culture, they did that out loud. Now, you don't have to do that out loud in your own life. Um, most of us, when we meditate on something um, in, in this sense, we'll think about it and we'll, re- we'll replay it to ourselves often, but they in that culture would say it out loud. And so there's a sense of if you're living the blessed life, you are oriented towards God's Word, and God's Word is a constant feature uh, by day and night. Um, that word by is implied in the Hebrew. So it's, it's not just you do it once a day and once a night. It is a lifelong constant refreshment and constant exposure to the law of the Lord. Um, And it's really an important thing for us to remember as Christians that you don't just become a Christian, read the Bible once, and then you're set and you're covered. Um, Because that's not how, it's not how the Bible is written. The Bible is written uh, to be read over and over and over again, to be meditated on, to be soaked in. Uh, The book of Psalms especially is like that. But if we don't do that, uh, a problem immediately comes up. And so and I'm about to talk to you about what that is. So the first part of this psalm points out very clearly there are two ways that any person can live. There is the blessed way, which is not like this, but is like this. And the not is not walking, standing, and sitting in the way of the wicked, sinful scoffers. And the good way is to delight in the law of the Lord and to meditate on that word day and night. So you're either oriented towards God or away from God. Those are the two ways to live. And notice that there is no third. And Jesus makes that point too um, in his preaching. He doesn't talk about, you know, oh, you can do this, or here's another possible option for you, or here's another possible option for you. He's very exclusive. He says things like, I am the way the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Walk by the narrow road, not the wide road that leads to destruction. God will separate the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats. There are two options in life. There's towards God and there's away from God. And the person who is towards God, verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. Uh, When I was studying um, down in Melbourne a few years ago, I would literally get on a plane every uh, Saturday morning, fly down to Melbourne, study for the weekends, get on a plane Sunday night and fly back, um, and it nearly killed me, but I did it. Um, Yep, I won't say that. Um, But when I was getting on the plane from Melbourne Airport every single week, there was this particular scene that would always confront me when I looked out the window as the plane was taking off. Uh, There's there's regions of the the countryside out there where you look down and you can see rivers, and you don't actually see the river. You know the river is there because there's just this massive green. There's just trees growing everywhere right where the water is. And then you look, you know, even 10 metres further away, and it's just barren. There's nothing growing there. It's brown. It's, um, there's nothing happening. Uh, the water is such an important thing for the trees. That the trees that are planted by the water, those are the ones that survive, and the ones that aren't planted by the water are the ones that just fail to even start growing. 
Uh, Emma and I planted a few citrus trees in our front yard a couple of years ago, hoping that we would have this nice kind of, um, you know, wall, I guess, of citrus um, across our front yard. But the problem is that part of the land is sloping. And so what has happened is the one down the bottom where the water naturally runs to, that one's growing really well. The one just a little bit further up the hill is growing a little bit less well. And the one up the top looks like it's the, exactly the same size as the day we planted it. Um, so I'm, if you've got any ideas, please come tell me later. But um, the water is just such an important thing for plants to grow. And in this context, the, the streams of water and a tree being planted by streams of water. Uh, water in Hebrew, it's a word that doesn't just mean water. I mean, often it, obviously it does, and most of the times when you read the word water in Hebrew, it's just saying water. But there are times where this, the word water is used to mean other things, like um, a particular bodily fluid that I won't explicitly name just for the sake of the young people in the room, that itself is a source of life. If you know what I'm talking about, that's fantastic. If you don't, just, just think about it as like stuff of life, right? Um, that, that gets translated as water, right? And so in this context, there's a very, um, whether it's on purpose or just by happy accident, the idea of water being a stuff of life uh, is very evident here. Uh, but a tree that is connected to the source of life is a very rich and very ongoing biblical image. Right back to Genesis chapter one, we have the idea of the tree of life. If you eat of that tree, you are connected to the source of life itself. And Adam and Eve were the ones who um, had access to that tree because they were connected to God. And for that reason, they were connected to life itself. They were, they were perpetually nourished. They were, they were attached to life itself. And then you go right through to the book of Revelation. And again, you have this idea of a tree um, that is connected to the source of life itself, and it is the, it's now attached to that idea of eternal life. And there's another passage, I think it's in Jeremiah, where this idea of a tree being planted by streams of water is also used. So th- this image just comes up across the Bible, literally beginning to end. Uh, the tree planted by streams of water is an image that unpacks what it means to be connected to the source of life itself. Uh, someone who is delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating on that law day and night, they are plugged into life itself. They are, they are going to grow. And notice that it says, its leaf does not wither and it yields its fruit in season. I said those the wrong way around. Uh, but notice that's, that's a state of being. It's not a reward. It's just a consequence of the situation you find yourself in. A tree doesn't reward itself with fruit. A tree just bears fruit because it's growing well. Um, The tree is planted near the source of life, and in all that it does, it prospers. Now, I want to be really careful here. Um, Some people have taken passages like this in the Bible to effectively say that if you do the right thing, good things will happen to you. Um, You know, if you give the right amount of money to church, if you help your pastor to buy his next private jet, then... God is going to bless you with everything that you want. You'll be happy, you'll be healthy, you'll be wealthy. Uh, The Bible never makes that point. Um, In fact, the Bible goes out of its way in many occasions, like the entire book of Job, to make it very clear that that point is not true. Um, The Bible doesn't say anything about if you're righteous in this life, then a good life will be the immediate reward for you. 
Um, if you go back to that first word in verse 1, blessed is the man. I talked about the idea of being blessed as being on a direction. Uh, you know, you're marching, you're heading in a particular direction. Um, the, the prosperity and the, the not witheringness, if I can put it in those terms, it's not looking at the here and now, and it's definitely not looking at the here and now in any physical or material or immediate sense. It's looking much, much further into the future. Uh, so it, you can be on the right way whilst you are driving through fog or heavy rain or um, on a windy, perilous road or um, having just come off the road and skidded off into the gravel and need to change your tyre, right? There's lots of different senses in which you can be on the right way whilst horrible things are happening to you in that particular aspect of your journey. And you can, be, you can have this sense of blessedness not because that component of the journey is going well, but because your destination is still the correct destination. You're heading the right way. Um, you know, if a sailor's sailing on the sea and they've got the North Star out in front of them, it, if a storm comes, they can still have a sense of um, contentment, even in the midst of danger and having to struggle really hard, knowing that we're still pointed the right way. At the end of this particular season, I'm heading in the right direction. I'm heading to the correct destination. Um, I found it quite um, edifying, I hope you don't mind me mentioning this, Lewis, when Lewis preached the other week on how we have a happy God and all of the wonderful goodness that comes from recognizing that God is happy and we can be happy in Him. One of the, um, one of the most poignant illustrations he gave of that was literally dragging himself out of a hospital bed to read his Bible, being happy even in a circumstance like that. We can have that, sorry if that was, no, yeah, you're good. Um, we have the ability to have joy in God and a certainty in God, not because things are great right now, but because we're heading in a direction that prospers. Um, and verse 4 makes that even clearer. Uh, the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Uh, this is kind of an agricultural metaphor. Um, if you grow something like wheat, there's different components of the seed. There's the middle of the seed called the germ, which is where all of the protein is. It's where all of the bit that's actually nourishing is. And then on the outside, there's a husk, which um, is part of the growth of the wheat. And on the plant, that's all fine. It actually helps to protect the germ. Um, I don't want to get too far into mixing up that metaphor, though, because it makes the husk sound like it's good. In, a, in an eating sense, it's not good, right? It just gets caught up in everything. Your body can't digest it. There's no... There's no nutritional value in it, and if you try to make bread or something, it just makes the bread all gross, like makes it all flaky and disgusting. And so when ancient people grew something like wheat, uh, they would thresh it all out. Um, they would kind of, uh, what's the word, crush it all up so that it's all nice and separate from each other, and then they would get a big fork and they would thresh it, so they would just get a big uh, handful of it, fling it up in the air, and because the husks are so light and they've got no serious um, substance to them, even the tiniest bit of breeze just blows it away. It's just got no, no substance to it, no, uh, no heft to it, and so it's just easily separated out from the wheat. And this, this illustration here is comparing the wicked, that life that is oriented away from God, and contrasting it with that tree planted by the stream of water, thriving, bearing fruit. So the, the, the chaff is just inconsequential, 
organic matter that just gets blown away when you're separating it out. And Jesus picks up this exact same metaphor, it's actually John the Baptist, um, who talks about Jesus, uh, and he says, even now his winnowing fork is in his hand. So um, the, the future judgment of everyone by God is compared to this idea of separating the wheat from the chaff, the, the good bit from the bad bit. And the bad bit in that moment will not stand. There will be no substance to it. There will be no residue of it. And there will be no meaning to it. It will just be blown away. And so there are two ways to live, two states that you are in as a result of that living, either planted or chaff that the wind will blow away. And then following on from that, there are two results. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I, I don't know what it is about this phase of my life that I'm in. I feel like since roughly about maybe 32 onwards, um, like when I was young, I was thinking about what I'd do with my life, and I made all sorts of choices that would basically result in me knowing that I'd never be rich. Like, um, I had the opportunity to maybe go study medicine or something, and I thought, nah, I don't want money. Like, that's not what I want with my life. I don't want to go off and make a million dollars. I want something more important than that. I want to be working with people. I want to be working in a way that allows me to spend time with my family. Those are the choices that I made. Um, and so I didn't go off and try to become a doctor or a lawyer. I became a teacher. Um, and I'm not rich, I'm not rich. Um, but since kind of getting established in my career, um, the things that didn't tempt me at all back when I was in my 20s are now starting to tempt me. Um, buying a house, um, setting myself up with, uh, you know, Emma and I together, our income stream is relatively stable and healthy, and so I've noticed that more recently, since I've started to get a taste of wealth, the temptation towards it um, has only grown. And not only that, I look out at people who, you know, my age, like there was a girl that I went to school with, she's now a regular presenter on the ABC Finance Show. Uh, I've got people who I went to school with who have gone on to make millions of dollars, start companies, all of it. And there's this, just this little twinge of, oh, I'm missing out on something. Um, I, I didn't get to do that. I don't have that power. I don't have that Ferrari. I don't have that um, beautiful house with a pool, whatever case may be. Um, and yet, reading this psalm this week was just a really helpful check on that for me because um, the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away, and the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Uh, it's a really powerful reminder that when you zoom out a little bit from the circumstances of this life and you think about what's not going right, what is going right, whatever, um, we can so easily be tempted to focus on the wrong things. Um, what matters ultimately is not wealth, status, situation. All of that is on very, very borrowed time. It's like the chaff that the wind will blow away. God has no regard for it. God has no interest in it. Anything that is on that trajectory, which way was I pointing? On that trajectory away from God is stuff that is doomed for destruction. It will not stand in the judgment. And so I'm encouraged to think that and to remember something that I think I knew better when I was in my 20s, that when you're living your life for Jesus, you are achieving things that actually matter, that actually will count, um, that actually have a lasting significance to them. Um, Elon Musk, if he doesn't give his life to Christ, 
that multi, multi billions of dollars, which he has no earthly way of even really spending because it's just so much money, will come to absolutely nothing. It will be like chaff that the wind blows away. And yet someone who just stops and offers a cup of cold water to someone who is thirsty, that, if it's done in the name of Christ, will be celebrated and reverberate into eternity. And so our, our sense of what we attach value to in our lives is radically shifted when we remember that there are things that are oriented away from God that are doomed for destruction and complete and utter irrelevance, and there are things that will be established and grow attached to the source of life for all eternity. Um, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, but the Lord, or sorry, for the Lord, knows the way of the righteous. This is the last Hebrew word I'll unpack a bit. The, the word know in Hebrew, it's not just a knowledge word. It doesn't just mean um, you have a piece of information in your brain. It's actually a word that also contains a sense of relationship. Um, in some parts of the Bible, I can't remember where, I think it even goes right back to like Adam and Eve when they talk about the birth of Cain and Abel. It doesn't say, well, it says in Hebrew, Adam knew his wife, Eve. Right? There is a sense of profound connection and relationship that is built into that word know. And so it's not just God knows the way of the righteous as in he can see you and he's aware of it, it's actually he is watching over it, he is connected into it, and the, the word know can also in this context have a sense of protection and guarding. God is actually actively invested in keeping and relating to the way of the righteous. Uh, you are in a relationship with him. So when you look at this psalm and you zoom back out from it, you see a very clear sense, two ways to live. There are, there's one way away from God, there's one way towards God. The, the away, way away from God leads you to be in a certain state, a state of worthlessness, a state that is just doomed for destruction, and a state that will not survive the judgment, and that is the result of that way of life. And then there is the way of following God, being immersed in his law, being planted like a tree next to the stream. And that way is the way that God knows, the way that God is superintending over, the way that will not perish, the way that will stand. But there's a massive trap that we can very easily fall into when we read a psalm like this. And that's to think that if you do good things, then you're set and people who do evil things are going to get what's coming to them. The problem is, the man who walks in the counsel of the wicked and stands in the way of sinners and sits in the seat of scoffers, that's you and that's me. Every single one of us at one point or other in our lives has found ourselves in exactly that category of um, doing what we want to do and in the process turning our backs on God and starting ourselves off into that state of rejection of him and separation from him. Uh, there's a great line in the song, How Deep the Father's Love, where it says, Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. We sit in the seat of scoffers just by virtue of the fact that we naturally turn our backs on God. Every single person is a sinner, and every single person, therefore, at least was in that state and on that trajectory that leads to destruction. The word planted, sorry I lied, there's one more, plant, there's one more Hebrew word. Um, the word planted in Hebrew here, there's actually two words in Hebrew that mean plant. There's one that means to plant something for the first time, uh, which I think is natah. Um, but this word here, I think it's shuel, I can't remember the exact word, I'd have to look it up now, I didn't put it in my notes. Uh, 
That word means transplanted, as in it's an act of taking something like a seedling or a plant and then moving it from an original location into a new spot. Um, the tree didn't plant itself by the streams of water. Uh, and the, the Hebrew word here makes that point very clearly. The, the planting is from one place into another place. We don't actually do the planting of ourselves in a new way of living. We are powerless to plant ourselves in that good and godly life, and it is only by the grace of God that we are taken from that trajectory of evil and darkness away from him into a trajectory where we can know him and love him and experience a good future with him. And so when we delight in the law, when our, when our intentions and our desires are oriented to, towards him and we get access to the understanding of his word that allows us to meditate on it day and night, all of that is actually a gift. And it's a gift that was won for us when Jesus, who was the only person who ever actually lived that way, died on the cross to pay that penalty of separation and death from God and give us access to the new life that allows us to be oriented towards him. All we do is receive a gift. That's, that's about the extent of our, um, of our contribution, if you like, to the salvation that we live. Um, and then the call on us is actually to live that life of delight in the law of the Lord, to meditate on it day and night in response to the ability to do that that God gave us in Christ. And so we have, those of us who have accepted Christ, we have the ability to live this righteous way, not because we are righteous, but because we were gifted righteousness. That state of walking, standing, and sitting in the good, delighting in the law and meditating on it day and night, that is a trajectory that God himself put us on. But it is also a trajectory then that he calls us to live out. It is possible to... Uh, to hold back from living out the fullness of what God has won for us in Christ if we don't um, live towards him. Uh, this idea of delighting on the law and meditating on it day and night, there's a, there's a worship sense in there. We are, we are so enamored with what God has to offer us. Oh, and I don't even want to say it that way. That's, um, that's the wrong way of saying it. What, who God is, start there. Who God is, his character, his goodness, the opportunity to be in a relationship with him, that we orient ourselves towards it. We can't get enough. And um, the, the sinful remnants of us tend to hold back from that. But God calls us, no, worship your way towards me. Uh, we worshipped our way away from him originally by looking to things of this world. And now we have the opportunity and the ability to live our lives worshipping towards him, to know him, to be in a relationship with him. Um, and that is what leads then to that, that eternal state of being plugged into the source of life, to surviving the judgment, to standing in the congregation of the righteous because we are able to live out the gift that he's given us. Um, but there's another trap in reading a passage like this, even when you understand that it is about that eternal perspective. It's not about the ins and outs of this life and it's not about... Um, just individual actions, but it's the whole trajectory and the whole course of your life. If we read this passage and we don't, and, and our first um, inclination is just towards the eternal life aspects of it, we're also missing the point. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his um, book on the Psalms, which I read as I was preparing for this week, I'm not going to be able to quote it because it's too long, but I'll just summarize it. He makes the point that um, to 
to follow God just because you are afraid of hell or wanting to get into heaven um, actually completely misses the point. Um, it's not it's like an extreme version, he makes this point, of looking after your health, right? Like if someone does everything they can to live a long life, then they get a long life, right? Uh, and if, if you are living in a particular way just to enjoy heaven or to enjoy eternity as opposed to eternity in hell, um, that's just an extreme version of that. If you take God out of the picture, heaven itself actually loses its heavenness. It's just an, an eternal... Um, continuation of existence. But if you think about what human life is like now, and you take God out of the picture, it's not actually that appealing. I think a lot of people actually are scared of heaven and are scared of this idea of eternity because when they conceptualize eternity, they actually take God out of it. Uh, they just think, I get to continue existing. Hang on, for billions of years? Wait, that'll get boring. But they, you don't think about the idea that, no, God is there. The one who is the most loving holy, interesting, deeply loving, deeply relational being in the whole universe who loved you so much that he was willing to send his son to die for you, who gave us this amazing creation to point us to himself, to give us even hints of what he's like, that's who's there in heaven. And that's what makes heaven worth going to. Um, without God, there is no point. And so when, when the passage says here to delight in the law of the Lord and to meditate on that law day and night. What we are ultimately called to as Christians, and it's an open invitation, it's like, I mean, it is a command in the sense that it's do this or it's going to be bad every other way, um, but it's an invitation to delight in the law of the Lord. To the, the, the things about God that we have access to right now are in His Word, in the Bible. We have the book of Psalms, we have the Old Testament law, we have the life of Jesus, we have the letters of Paul. These are all just little, little morsels of the character of the God who made us and who loves us and who has an eternity set up before us. And so I want to encourage all of us, and I need to hear this as much as anyone, delight in the law of the Lord. Uh, if you've got a favorite author, you probably read every single thing that they've written. If you've got a person in your life who you really enjoy spending time with, you make time to spend with them as often as you can because it's a joy in and of itself. When we understand the character of God, when we know who he is and when we know what he's done for us, that's actually the good bit, is just getting to spend more time in him, following him, living for him. That's what it's all about. So when you read a psalm like this, don't think... There's the good and there's the evil and I'm the good so these people suck. It's No, you were one of those people and God in his great mercy saved you from it. And secondly, he didn't save you just so you could go on living forever. He saved you so that you would have the immense privilege of knowing and being connected to him and the group of people who he has saved to be in connection with. And that's one of the things I love about our church is that at our best, and we're at our best more often than not, I would say, based on like when I'm up there, it's probably worse. But um, at our best, we love Jesus. We worship Jesus. We connect with each other because we are all connected first to Jesus. That's what makes the Christian life worth living. And that's what makes it such a joy to be part of a church. We have the Word of God. We get to delight in the Word of God. And we do that together. And so as we sing our final song in just a moment, your words are wonderful, let's remember who we're singing to, let's remember what he's done for us, and let's enjoy the good course of life that he has given us the ability to walk on. Let me pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us the opportunity through your Son to live the wise life, that you have given us the ability to turn our backs on the, the way of the wicked, the, the path of the unrighteous and the seat of the scoffer. Please help us to make our home in you. Uh, we thank you that you know the ways of the righteous, and we thank you that the righteousness that we have is a gift that comes from Christ. And so please help us now to turn to you in just gratitude and awe and celebration. And we, turn, uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.